It's sweet and good for us to sing together Wednesday evening and to gather together for our weekly study here on Wednesday nights. We're delighted to be able to continue in our study of Psalm 119. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to Psalm 119. We are just at the very beginning of what will be a long journey, but a wonderful journey, through Psalm 119. Tonight we come to cover the third section or third stanza in this chapter. You see, it's an entitled Gimel. So those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans automatically think Gimli. Not quite Gimli, but close, Gimel, third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Why don't we ask for God's blessing as we come to study his word now. Father in heaven, we are privileged and blessed to be able to have the scriptures before us. That you have spoken, you've revealed yourself, you've disclosed the riches of your character You've displayed your great and mighty acts. You've preserved your word that down through the centuries it's been faithfully translated and transmitted so that we here today can open up and read your word and understand it. We are greatly blessed, God, to possess it. So we come now tonight before your majestic word, placing ourselves beneath it, bowing in submission before it, asking in all humility that you would be our help, our guide, our teacher, that as we'll see soon, that you would even open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Help us, God, we pray. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. Psalm 119, tonight we're walking through verses 17 through 24. Our study tonight is entitled, The Pilgrim's Tune. The Pilgrim's Tune. It's with that in mind that we think it's amazing how music can paint a picture That even through the medium of sound, sounds can make one not just hear, but even see a story. And that by means of music, it can add excitement to a story. It can build the drama of a story. Think of what might be your favorite soundtrack. The different tracks in that soundtrack, the moments in the symphony that build and feed the excitement. Think maybe not of a soundtrack, but of your own favorite symphony, one of the pieces through the centuries, classical in nature, how hearing it, 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 it grabs you, it moves you, and, and even if it's set to some story or opera, again, by means of the sound, it's as if you can see what's unfolding. In fact, tonight I want to think for just a moment of at least one example, maybe you know it, produced in 1936, Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. Do you know Peter and the Wolf? The simple story for children with beautiful music accompanying it. Story all revolving around this young boy, Peter. And if you don't know it, in the story, each character is represented by a different musical instrument. And so at the beginning, you're introduced to Peter, this young boy in the story. And what do you hear? The strings begin to play, the violins with this familiar theme that as you hear it, it's as if you can see this young boy, uh, young, up for an adventure, naive, not knowing the danger that's in front of him. We're introduced to the bird by means of the flute. 
the cat with the clarinet, the duck with the oboe, the grandfather uh, who tries to speak to his grandson by means of the bassoon, of course, hunters by means of the timpani or the kettle drum, with each one of these musical instruments representing each one of these characters as the story progresses, the symphony unfolds, you, the listener, can see and hear this sweet story. And yet to change the instrument and even to change the tune How in this story, suddenly as the tune and the instrument changes, suddenly the sound is quite threatening, scary, and ominous. Because if you know the story, when you begin to hear the sound of the French horns, you're introduced to the wolf. And every time those French horns play that ominous theme, you know close by there is this wolf. And yet even in the story, as it sounds scary, you and I know, even if you don't know the story, it's necessary and needed because it's part of the story. If you didn't have the sound of the French horn introducing the wolf, you wouldn't have Peter and the wolf. It's part and parcel of the story. It's part of the tune. And it's that very concept, something that's part of the tune, even though the sound is ominous, something similar plays out before us when we come to the third section of Psalm 119. We're not too far into our journey through this psalm. We've really only just begun. By way of reminder, we come to Psalm 119. This is the longest chapter in all of the Psalter, but also the longest chapter in all of the Bible. That if you've read through the entirety of Psalm 119, what you have before you is uh, the poetic master class in composition. 22 sections representing the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each section eight verses in length, and with each section, each one of those eight verses, uh, each verse, think that every line begins and starts with that particular letter for the Hebrew alphabet. So, you look at the opening verses, one through eight, you see in your Bible the heading above it, Aleph, Aleph being the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If you could see the Hebrew, you would see verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. The very first word in each line beginning with that Hebrew letter, Aleph. It's a little easier to understand, just think the letter A. Same thing when you come to verses 9 through 16 with the second letter, Baith. Same tonight, our third letter, Gimel. Why was this done? Why this poetic master class in composition? Well, throughout this psalm, it's putting before us this acrostic device really a pedagogical tool. It's to aid those who would hear it in memorizing it. Also, to help one remember and even to feed into this poetic master class, you know we've seen it already in our journey. Uh, This psalm in particular is replete with so many synonyms for Scripture. Do you remember some of them? I mean, you you read through this psalm, it's as if in every single verse you come across one way or another of God's word being described. You come across the term word. You come across the term way, law, statutes, precepts, ordinances, commandments, testimonies, and even more. Why the variety? Why build up the synonyms? No doubt each one has its own distinct shade of meaning. 
but think all together with this composition. It's as if the shades of meaning together with this palette paint this picture of what we've entitled this study, the glory of God's word. You and I, as we read through this psalm, what is constantly put before us, refrain after refrain, is that, friend, there is nothing, nothing like this book. Nothing at all compares to it. Add up all the books composed and written and produced through all of the ages, and what are they compared to this majestic heaven-sent, heaven-inspired book. Oh, it's to impress upon us. Again, the acrostic, the synonyms. What is it impressing upon us? That the Bible, friend, it's all supreme. It is all sufficient. It is all satisfying. In fact, reflecting the very character of the God who gave it. That just as God is all supreme, just as God in and of himself is all sufficient, and because of that he himself is all satisfying, then no doubt the word he breathes out inscripturated before us, it reflects that same Character. That's why we say this book is the greatest gift that could be given to us. That's the tune. That's what this psalmist, we don't even know who it is who wrote this psalm. Could be Daniel. Could be David. Could be Ezra. We don't know. Yet even in that anonymity, what is so clear is that Psalm 119 shows us the glory of God's word. Carrying further this idea of tune, the first two stanzas, the tune thus far has been quite pleasant, right? Quite joyous. You could use the term happy. The first eight verses As we walked through them, they present to the reader the happiness of obedience to Scripture. For someone who's been saved, someone who stands before God in a saving relationship, having been forgiven of their sin, brought into this reconciled relationship, changed and transformed from the inside out, that rightly then it's pronounced, how blessed How divinely satisfying and happy is the one whose way is blameless, the one who walks in the law of the Lord. We need to be reminded of that. We trust you were a few weeks ago. The blessed life, the happy life, the life filled with delight and joy is the life of a believer seeking to live in simple obedience to God's word. Delightful, not a drudgery. The tune then continued last time, verses 9 through 16, in a section that portrays the pursuit of purity. If someone's going to happily seek to obey God's word, no doubt they want to live a life pure before God, and God's word is meant to be the very instrument to grow us and to purify us, to keep us on the right path that leads to blessing. Now, you could sit here tonight and hear that, and maybe you were here for the last two weeks, and you might be thinking, well, that all sounds great for them, but what about for the rest of us? You know, because in these first two sections, it could seem that the psalmist, as he writes these verses... Uh, he's tucked away in some nice, safe environment. Not like the real world. Might you be thinking that? You ever think that, you know, sometimes when someone's writing about the Bible, maybe even the writers of Scripture 
oh, good, great for them, but, you know, they were set apart, they were kept pristine, they don't know what it's like to live in 2023, they don't know the burden of the eight to five heading to work, the demands. In fact, even today, you get home and the demands remain because you're constantly accessible by means of that tiny little device with a screen on it. If you've ever thought that, let me say clearly, the Bible was never written in a vacuum. The Bible was never written in some sort of sterile environment, some sort of removed utopia. No, the Bible was very much written for those who live life in a fallen world. How do we know that? we can at least pick that up as we come to the section in front of us. Why? The tune changes. You remember from the introduction, different instruments can introduce different sounds. The French horn can introduce that ominous threat of the wolf. Well, at least here in this section, a new part begins to be played as the tune changes. And in the verses in front of us, we begin to pick up that, oh, in this life there is difficulty. Someone who seeks to obey God's word, someone who's committed to the path of purity, they will face distress. Why don't we read the verses? Perhaps you'll even notice how the tune changes. Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies are also my delight. They are my counselors. Here before us is the pilgrim's tune composed of at least two parts. That will be our outline tonight. The first part that makes this tune is found in verses 17 through 20. We'll entitle it this, The Pilgrim's Prayer. The Pilgrim's Prayer. And as we move into this section, whoever this psalmist is, as he considers God's word and he looks up to the God of the word, how his heart is opened up, how he will look up to God and he will simply pray. And in his prayer, how it will be so stirring, so moving. In fact, we hear him begin in verse 17 with this Direct request, really a plea. He looks up to God and what is the prayer that he asks and pleads to the God who made him? He prays, deal bountifully. Deal bountifully with your servant. 
Oh, God, deal bountifully with me. Really, deal fully with me. It's a way of looking up to God and simply asking God, God, oh God, supply me with the very thing that I need. You'll note in this plea, even as he will speak of himself and direct his prayer up to God, he's not approaching God with some proud demand. In no way is he approaching God as if he's approaching his own peer. No, he makes this request, even built in the term, deal fully with me. It's as if he's acknowledging God, I'm not coming to you based on my own merit. I'm not able to have access to you because of something that I've done, because in some way I'm deserving of it. No, rather, God, I'm coming to you simply because of who you are, according to your very character, your very goodness. God, I'm merely appealing to your grace on that basis to me, your servant, Oh, Lord, deal fully. Even he'll speak of himself here, you see, as God's servant. What a rich designation, a term that signifies his loyalty to God. No doubt his own submissiveness to God. His trust in God. To be a servant, to approach this God, it's as if he would say, oh God, who am I to ever question you? Who am I to doubt you or grumble against you? No, no, I've been saved by you for you. God, I've been saved to serve you. What a privilege that is. That you would look upon me, welcome me into your family, call me your very servant. You think even the dignity in that term, for it's the same term that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament of the very chosen instruments whom God would raise up. Was there anything special in them? No, but God would set his love upon them. He would raise up Moses. He would raise up the prophets and they would be those privileged ones to speak and to act on God's behalf. Servants of Yahweh who would belong to him. This is something that the psalmist in Psalm 119 latches onto. Thirteen times we're going to hear this description. But even as we hear it, we hear the first words of his prayer. We might wonder and ask why. Why, why this prayer? The very first from the pilgrim, deal fully with me? Why would he ask that? Well, we're told why. Two reasons are given for this request. God, deal fully with me. First, that I may live. Second, that I may keep your word. Whoever this pilgrim is, he gets it. He's expressing, God, I need you. I need you to live. My being, my existence, let alone my doing, you must sustain. He understands that if he's to live as God's servant, he's to live for God and he's to obey God and keep his word. So he asks for God to supply him out of the bounty of his character to deal fully with him that he may live, and that he may keep God's word. 
We wonder if the psalmist here, the pilgrim, is a good student of the catechism because he seems to understand the chief end of man. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So different than the way so many would think about life and its purpose. Think of how many today who do all they can by means of money, by means of exercise, by means of dieting, and even looking into genetics, hoping with all their effort to somehow prolong their life. For what purpose? That they can spend it and live it for self. But not the psalmist. No, he prays, God, help me to live that I might live long and live for you. Already we're struck by this prayer. And to think as he would make this request known to God, that the very God who would receive this prayer as it ascends up to him, not only does he receive it and hear it, but he answers it. As the commentator Plumer would describe, perhaps even describing you and I here tonight, afflicted, tempted, and tried as God's people may be, he still deals bountifully with them all. The humblest and poorest have unsearchable riches and unspeakable blessings. Life is theirs. Forgiveness is theirs. Acceptance is theirs. Renewal is theirs. The world is theirs. God is their father. Christ is their brother. The spirit, their sanctifier, comforter, and guide. All the wealth of the world is not worth half as much as one covenant blessing. Oh, friend, you here tonight, do you understand what the psalmist is praying? In fact, going further, do you pray this to God? In a word, do you understand your own dependence? Not just to serve God, but even before that, to live. That you woke up today as a gift of God's grace. That your very heart has been beating. Why? He's graciously sustained it thus far. Oh, to begin to understand one's dependence. Here we see dependence drives devotion. The very anthem we hear repeated in the New Testament, you know it well, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. That's what life is all about for a believer. That's what this psalmist is at as he begins to pray this pilgrim's prayer. But note the progression. He prays, God, sustain my life that I might keep your word. But if he's going to live and keep God's word, he then prays, God, I need to know your word. And so to verse 18, the prayer continues with these words so familiar, so oft repeated. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. When he asks God to open, uh, it's a term signifying God uh, uncover, roll away, almost as if there's a veil shrouding my vision. God, will you not take it away and remove it, that which is blocking my sight? Again, that dependence is carried over. He's acknowledging his dependence that God would help him understand the Bible. I think the argument here is not so much because the Bible is shrouded in mystery, that the Bible's hard to understand. No, no, the Bible's perfect, perfect and plain enough 
but the psalmist realizes he's not. In fact, even as a believer, he understands his very spiritual sight can be marred. So he's praying to God, God, the the problem's with me, not with your word. God, would you open up my eyes? It's as if he's acknowledging sin, God, blinds my sight. My own prejudice and bias fogs my sight. God, my my own experience, which at times can be so powerful, it can begin to distort my sight. As Puritan Thomas Manton would say, saints don't complain of the obscurity of the law but of their own blindness. The psalmist does not say, Lord, make a plainer law, but Lord, open my eyes. Simply pause and say how different this is than what's trumpeted today. You think of the influence of the whole school of postmodern thought and critical theory disseminated through the airwaves, pushed upon students in the classroom, that even by that, it would bring someone influenced by this to say, no, 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 don't pray that. Your very experience, your very identity and bias, that's what enables you to see and understand the Bible. You think that here tonight? I hope not. No, no, we need to stick to the old paths of study and interpretation that would pray and plead, give light, O Lord. Your word is clear. My vision is not. Open up my eyes, God, that I might see. And behold, again, Building on this, one commentator said, the Spirit puts nothing new into the Bible. He only so enlightens and strengthens our faculties that we can discern and admire what's there already. And oh, indeed, what is there already? You understand what this is like? You ever have it in your Bible reading where you're reading through a passage you've, you've probably read 10 times before already. And yet on some particular occasion, it's as if uh, some particular passage jumps out off the page as if suddenly for the first time you see and read and understand this verse. You look up at those around you. Have you read this verse in the Bible? I didn't know it was there, even though I've read it before. Oh, it is already there. The wonderful things uh, that are here. As the psalmist will ask this and speak of these wonderful things, he says, in, from your law, the term law, Torah, perhaps he's thinking the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, possibly, but the term can also just mean instruction. In other words, God, in all of your word, in all of your instruction, help me to see, help me to behold those very things that because you were behind it, inherently they're wonderful. Wonderful, the natural man's blind to them, but someone saved, someone spiritually minded who can begin to see what the word says. Oh, these very wondrous acts of God fill us with awe as the great glory of our God is put on display. I mean, can we rehearse a few of them here tonight? You could just take this and go to the left portion of your Bible. Think of the way the Bible begins with the great pronouncement and triumphant declaration that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
Did he use some sort of instrument? Was there some agent that he brought to begin the construction work? No, no, his mere speech. He speaks and sings the universe and the earth into existence. You think of the wondrous way he would reveal himself to that man out in the wilderness uh, where Moses is there tending the flock and he looks and he beholds the bush and how the bush burns and yet is not consumed. And the very voice speaking out of that bush will tell Moses, I am who I am. That is the one who raises you up and sends you to your people. You think of the scene in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel enslaved under the tyranny of Pharaoh with Egypt as its peak in its empire. And yet by the strong, mighty arm of God, he saves them, he delivers them, And as he will save and deliver his people, that very act will be the act of judgment against his enemies. That as the nation of Israel in Exodus 15 stands on the shore singing praise to God for their salvation, the dead bodies of the Egyptians with each wave wash ashore, displaying the power of God's judgment. You think of the provision in the wilderness, even the provision after Israel will grumble and forfeit entering the promised land. How for 40 years, we read, there was no need, no lack. Why? God sustained them, sustained them in such a way that their very shoes didn't wear out. Think of the scene at Sinai the nations there at the base of this mountain and with the meteorological signs and phenomena signifying God in his glory has arrived at the top of the mountain to give his law. In fact, there are some children in here tonight. Boys and girls, do you remember your Sunday school lesson this last Sunday? You know of one of these ways where God showed his wonderful work? That when the scary, mighty Assyrian army wanted to defeat God's people, that in one night God sent forward an angel and 180,000 soldiers died. That shows... God's wonderful work and how strong and mighty this God is. Many more could be recorded, but friend, that's just the left side of your Bible. What is that compared to the right side of the Bible crossing into the New Testament where he whose very name is wonderful will enter into space and time. Behold, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The apostle will say, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. That even looking at the great God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his birth, in his life, in his ministry and miracles, in his arrest and crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection and ascension, even recorded later his present session at God's right hand. Even him sending forth his spirit who would in this incredible way produce and grow this new spiritual body called the church. And by means of a ragtag group of washed out disciples, they entrusted with the gospel, enabled by the spirit, turned the very world upside down. Have you seen these wonderful things in God's word? 
Have you come across the pages of Scripture with what's a very childlike wonder and awe at what God has done? Or are you here tonight and you've forgotten that? You've brought your Bible, you've brought the notepad, but you've lost that very sense of wonder. That even day after day, you know, I need to read this word, I want to keep this word, but it's so dry, the drudgery behind it. Perhaps you've begun to forget how wonderful God's acts are. Let's not be here tonight treating and acting as if God's word's just another one of those hand-me-downs. Not worth half my time. In fact, with that in mind, Spurgeon recounted a story once told by a pastor to illumine this very thing of what you and I, how we can be sometimes with God's word. The story goes that there was a man who once inherited an incredible estate. But he gave no thought to it because he had his own house that he lived in. Year after year passed, he gave no thought to that sprawling estate until one day someone asked him, have you ever been to the estate? Have you ever gone and walked and looked inside this mansion that's now part of your inheritance? Out of sheer curiosity, the man changed his mind and decided he would go and for the first time check out this estate that belonged to him. He walked up onto the porch and even there on the porch, began to notice and was surprised seeing the skill in the construction. He went inside the estate and walked down one hall and walked down another hall and was surprised at the things that he saw. He entered into one large room and was taken aback by the portraits he saw on the wall. One by Raphael, another by Correggio, Another by Rembrandt, another by Van Gogh, another by Monet. Astonished by what he saw, he proceeded to go room by room, pouring over it all. And the man would then exclaim, here I've had this place for so many years and never knew all along the wonderful things that were here all this time. And after telling that story, the pastor said, no one has ever conceived of such an estate as God's word. From that, that, that's just a story. But this, this is the real thing. This is the true estate that's in our possession filled with wonderful things. So the pilgrim prays. In fact, this word that he prays about becomes all the more precious when you begin to understand your place in this world. Verse 19, he says, I'm a stranger on this earth, God. He knows himself. He offers up this prayer, he offers up his commitment, and he recognizes because of my prayer, because of my commitment, I am out of place on planet earth. All around me there are people buzzing about life with such different priorities. He feels out of place, he feels isolated, he feels alone. Have you ever felt like that before? It happens to pilgrims. As Christopher Ash said, he said, I live here, but I don't belong here. Why? Our citizenship is in heaven. And on earth in this life we're strangers, sojourners, resident aliens. 
And knowing this makes the word all the more precious. So precious that he'll plead with God, God, do not hide your commandments from me. As if he's acknowledging, God, don't don't leave me to my own devices. Don't leave me to my own intuition, my feeble, frail thinking. Open my eyes, help me on this earth. He knows that, as one said, God's word is able to furnish light, joy, strength, food, armor, defense, whatever else the pilgrim needs. In fact, his prayer will even crescendo with such great passion in verse 20 that as he prays to God for life, for help, for understanding, for strength, fueling it all inside is this passionate desire, this strong, intense affection animating him. My soul is crushed with longing, he prays, after your ordinances at all times. I mean, someone hear this and say that this, this is a fanatic. This guy's a bit extreme. He, he's a little radical. And he's simply displaying, no, no, this is just a pilgrim. A pilgrim will be desperate for God's word like this. Who will so love, want, and need God's word that he says, it's as if I'm crushed inside. I so long, I so languish. God, it's as if if you don't give me scripture and its understanding, I will faint Rightly did Spurgeon say here, true godliness lies very much in the desires. Indeed, here the whole phrase expresses the liveliest and most absorbing concern, as an older commentator would say. And we can read this and think that this this is challenging. When are my desires like that? It is challenging. Maybe tonight there's a bit of a rebuke that our desires aren't strong the way that this pilgrim is. Our desires can be warped and twisted, placed upon the very wrong objects or even the right object too intensely but to place them upon God and his word, even to go to God and to say, God, help me, strengthen me, fuel and redirect my desires back to you, even to understand the flow of thought here as he will understand scripture, biblical truth feeds and fans the flame of these desires. You could say, yeah, but but that's just the camp high, the conference high. Is it for this pilgrim? He says, at all times. Wanting God's word, wanting his ordinances, meaning what God says for how he is to live, what God wants him to do, that's what he wants, that's what he craves. Oh, and more could be said, though we will simply ask as we come to the end of the first part of the pilgrim's tune, do you hear it tonight? How we ought to cry out to God and pray in like manner. Even to look at this prayer with all of its requests and even to simply see, oh, this prayer is personal. He's speaking to God in a way that he regularly speaks to him. No doubt it's passionate, 
all of his soul is poured into this request. It's particular. It's honed in on God's word that God would open up his eyes, not hide the commandments that God would give and that God would help him to keep God's word. And note all throughout this prayer, it is a plea in humble dependence. That's the pilgrim's prayer. But lest you forgot what we said at the beginning, the Bible was never written in a vacuum. The pilgrim writes this not in a spiritual bubble, not in a room covered with pillows and cushions. No, it's actually where we begin to hear this other tune that makes up the pilgrim's tune. The second part, reminding us that in the real world, oh, everyday life can be like a battlefield. We move to part two. The pilgrim's pressure. Verses 21 through 24. Suddenly, we hear an ominous sound and we realize there are other characters that are going to be introduced. Of course, why are we surprised? If someone's going to live faithfully like this and govern their life according to Scripture, oh, that becomes a magnet attracting another crowd, bringing hostility, bringing pressure. We're introduced to them in verse 21. He thinks of them, and he knows God's response towards them. He says, you rebuke, here they are, the arrogant, who are further described as the ones who are cursed and the ones who wander from your commandments. Put differently, here are some unbelievers. Unbelievers who are especially drawn towards someone who wants to honor God's word. If you're here tonight trying to live your life faithfully as a Christian according to Scripture, be assured you're going to draw in some quite hostile to you who will begin to apply their pressure he refers to them as the arrogant, arrogant meaning they're proud, they're presumptuous, they sin with a high hand. Maybe for our younger people in here tonight, people who are naughty and they know it. And they don't care who knows. They're void of God because they're so full of themselves. And how do they act? Well, as the commentator Ross says, pride here runs contrary not only to God, but get this, even to reality. Does that sound like people today? Who would so speak and live and act as if they can just create their own reality going against the very fabric of the world in which we live. No doubt many would be involved, but we would think of the pride of those who would so boldly proclaim uh, that they are the ones who assign their own gender. In fact, they, they could just switch and change it however they wish. That's quite arrogant. The pilgrim refers to them as those who are cursed, a loaded term drawing from Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Those who would transgress God's covenant, they are the ones cursed, coming under its punishment. Maybe we could think like those in Romans chapter 1, whom the wrath of God is against, with their unrighteousness and ungodliness. To further describe them, the pilgrim says, they are those who wander from your commandments. Oh, they wander from God's commandments, but when they find someone who doesn't, oh, the irony, they're drawn in, drawn against. 
the one who would honor God's word. What pressure do they offer? Well, we give a, we're given a clue in verse 22 where he will again pray, take away reproach and contempt from me. Reproach and contempt. Again, have you experienced this? Because of your belief in the Bible to be on the receiving end of hostility, derision, sometimes we're taken aback and we're caught off guard, and yet we really shouldn't. It's par for the course. 2 Timothy 3.12 will tell us all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And here's the pilgrim on the receiving end of sneer, slander. In fact, maybe they act differently. Maybe you've come across this. To your face, they'll be quite charming, pleasant, very talkative. In fact, suddenly, even though you know they have no interest in spiritual things, they just can't stop talking about spiritual things. They can't stop talking about the things they try to do to be a good person. They ask you about spiritual things, and yet you know the moment you turn your back, it's as if they have the knife ready to plunge in you. Oh, if you've not experienced this, just give it time. It comes. We confess it is so hard to be on the receiving end of this, to be labeled by someone, oh, you bigot. You're so unloving. You must be just uh, afflicted with some phobia. You don't want to be caught on the wrong side of history. Oh, you're so narrow-minded, so judgmental. Maybe you speak to them and you see the eye roll. You hear them say, here we go again. Doesn't it always come back to the Bible for you? Oh, and you and I can try to develop thick skin, but inevitably words can still sink beneath and words always can hurt. And it's as if there's just pressure sitting on you. And it weighs and it drains a burden so heavy that you just can't help but thinking about it. And it begins to affect how you live and how you interact with others. Maybe you're here tonight and you know exactly what this is like and it hurts because deep down it's so untrue. You're doing all that you can to honor God and you know and I know it's never perfect. But perhaps like the pilgrim here, it's consistent. He says in verse 22, I observe your testimonies. It's as if he's saying, God, before you, you see, you know it all. I have a clear conscience. What can you do then when you feel this pressure? I think Spurgeon put it quite well. The best way to deal with slander is to pray about it. God will either remove it or remove the sting from it. Did you catch that? You try to remove it yourself, you try to clear your name, inevitably there will be more pressure and more of an issue. But with a clear conscience before God, you go to him, you pray, God, take away this contempt, take away this reproach. Spurgeon says, and he says rightly, God will either remove it or at least the sting of it, the pain of it, he'll take it away. Oh, even if the pressure intensifies, verse 23 
Might you be like this pilgrim? Whoever he is, he says, princes sit and talk against me. I mean, here's just a simple man trying to honor God's word, and it's attracted this crowd, the arrogant, the cursed, the ones who wander from God's word, and now the princes, meaning the higher-ups, the powerful people. Oh, they're in on this pressure too. In fact, they, it says, sit and talk against me. It's as if they have their private meeting specifically conspiring and deliberating together against this pilgrim. Oh, that's pressure. What does the pilgrim do? How does he respond? He meditates on your statutes. Oh, as they sit and conspire together against the pilgrim, the pilgrim sits with God's word and meditates on what God says, mulling it over, thinking upon it. Meditation meaning he thinks to so digest God's word and find nourishment from it. What an example. And you know, lest this just be poetry, we do see this very thing lived out in at least one servant recorded in Scripture. Maybe why some think this servant wrote Psalm 119. Do you remember Daniel? Both in his youth and in his old age. As he seeks to honor God, as he prays in dependence upon God, knowing the word, knowing the pressure against him. Do you see Daniel compromise? Do you see Daniel in any way try to beat the system? Or does he simply entrust himself to God and take whatever comes his way? Maybe tonight you do well to read over Daniel chapter 6, how even so specifically those in charge, they look at him, they observe him, and it says they can't find anything against him. So what do they do? They have to devise and concoct this scheme to get him in trouble. He lived faithfully as a pilgrim for this God. How did he do that? How did the pilgrim here do this? Well, the secret maybe is seen again in verse 24. How do you endure this type of pressure? Directing yourself back to Scripture, looking upon them, and saying with the psalmist, your testimonies, they are my delight, and they are my counselors. He is so consumed with wanting to honor God. Oh, the pressure doesn't even faze him. He's so occupied, he says, God, your word satisfies my soul. It's my delight. And when I certainly need it, help for guidance, your word, literally, they're the men of my counsel the very best intelligence, the very soundest advice comes from your word. Oh, as we'll see later, your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. True for Daniel, true for the pilgrim, we'll even add it's true also for our Savior when he came to this earth and lived that perfect life of faith. He, the true servant of the Lord, you think of the hostility and the pressure that he received, the persecution that came his way. He reminds us, John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also do what? Persecute you. We look to him 
He exhibiting the perfect life of a pilgrim, one who lives by faith. And as we look to him, oh, in Hebrews 12, 13, 12 3, we remember, consider him who's endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him then, friend. Give yourself to his word. Understand as we leave here tonight, you and I are strangers on this earth, pilgrims passing through. At times we feel alone, but we gather together, we look around, we sing, and we remember there are others out there. This body, this company, proclaiming and playing this same tune, facing pressure, yet having the same prayer, oh, it enables us to keep going. But we do say, you could be sitting here tonight, hear the entirety of this passage, and think, that all sounds very odd and peculiar. Odd and weird. And you know, it is, if you're blind to its glory. Perhaps you're here tonight and you remain blind to this glory, trapped still in your sins, not understanding how this word is such a wonderful gift. To you, this word announces this message from the very king who gave it, the God who authored the Bible, the God who made you and has brought you to this very place here tonight. And the pronouncement is so simple, he will make it through his messenger, simply this, be reconciled to him. The, the word of God will proclaim to you, if you're trapped in this blindness, trapped in your sin, the Bible offers this promise, let the sinner forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord for he will have compassion, and to our God, why, he will abundantly pardon. You could be that one applying that pressure, the one who described here is arrogant, who's wandered from God in his word. Oh, friend, return to him tonight in humble submission turning to him, trusting in him, then your eyes can be opened. Then at last you can see the glory of God's word. Father, we thank you for our study tonight. Thankful that the Bible was never written in a vacuum, but as it comes to us, it comes in words, pictures, describing situations that we very much face every day. Thank you, Lord, for helping us. Thank you for giving your word as a gift to us. What an estate it is. Help us rightly to desire and treasure it. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen.